level. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Heard about a fellow who went to a counselor and the counselor sat back and listened to him for several sessions as he kind of explained his life and all the things he had gone through and how he had handled those things. And finally he said to the counselor, so the reason I've come to you is I think I have an inferiority complex. And the counselor said, no, you don't have an inferiority complex. You are inferior. When we read this passage, we might think that Paul needs to go see a counselor. Because notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 16, the end of that verse. And who is adequate for these things? In other words, we're inadequate. Then you come to chapter 4 and in, or chapter 3 and in verse 4 he says, such confidence we have. Verse 6, who also made us adequate. Verse 12, therefore having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. He says in chapter 2, we're inadequate. He says in chapter 4, we're adequate. Now what's going on? Is Paul schizophrenic? Does he have an inadequacy complex? No. There's a paradox at work here. And this book, I told you the theme of this book is authentic Christianity. This is the secret to authentic Christianity. We'll call it our adequate inadequacy. And in verses 4 to 18 of chapter 3, Paul gives us three reasons why our our inadequacy is adequate. And those three reasons I've put in your bulletin. Our means, our message, and our metamorphosis. First of all, our means in verses 4 and 5. Notice verse 4 again. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Now why does Paul say in chapter 2 verse 16, I can't do these things. And now in chapter 3 and verse 4, I can. I'm confident. Why does Paul say in chapter 2 verse 16, I'm not adequate? And now in chapter 3, I am adequate. Well, the difference is found in that little phrase in verse 4, through Christ. Paul says, I am not adequate through me, but I am adequate through Christ. In fact, and I want you to get this, because this is really the secret to authentic Christianity. The condition for becoming adequate is acknowledging our inadequacy. And that's what he says in verse 5. Notice, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Did you know that you can't live the Christian life? Did you know that? When somebody comes up to me and says, I'm trying to be a better Christian, you know what I say? Give it up. You can't try in your own adequacy to become a better 
Christians. Christians, we said it last week, Christians don't need self-confidence. What do we need? We need Christ-confidence. When it comes to adequacy, verse 5 tells us nothing comes from ourselves. Everything comes from God. Jesus said in John 15.5, apart from Me, you can do some things. Apart from Me, you can do the basics. Apart from Me, you can get by. No. He said, apart from Me, you can do nothing. Now that doesn't mean we can't do some things. We can do some things, but the things we do don't last. I can preach apart from Christ. I can serve apart from Christ. I can give apart from Christ. And people may applaud what I do. People may even emulate what I do, but God will call it what it is. And that's nothing. The principle that underlines authentic Christianity is all from Christ, nothing from me. So let me say this, and get this if you don't get anything else today. We are most adequate when we are inadequate. We are most adequate when we are inadequate. And guess what? You have to learn that. You don't get that automatically at salvation. It's something you have to grasp and understand. And then when you think you've learned it, guess what? You've lost it. And you've got to learn it again. And you learn it over and over and over again. But if you're a Christian and you've never learned this, it's the key to authentic Christianity. Paul had to learn it. He didn't get it at salvation. In fact, let me show you this. Uh, go, go back to Acts chapter 9 with me. If you have your Bible, I'm going to have you jump around a little bit. But I want you to see something. I think you'll really be excited about this. Acts chapter 9, in verses 1 to 18, we have the description of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And then in verse 19 of chapter 9, it says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. He gets saved. He's in Damascus. Immediately, he starts proclaiming Jesus. Verse 21, All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Isn't this the guy that hated Christians? Now he's proclaiming Jesus. Now stop right there because we have to interject something into this passage. And for that, I want you to keep your finger in Acts 9 and go to Galatians chapter 1. And verse 15. Paul is talking. And he says, But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So while he's in Damascus, he goes away, and the next verse says he was there for three years. He goes into the Arabian desert for three years, then he comes back 
to Damascus. And so I put that incident between verse 21 and 22 of Acts chapter 9. What was he doing in the desert? Well, I would suggest he was studying the Old Testament Scriptures again. He already knew them. But now he knows Jesus. And he studies the Old Testament Scriptures again. And guess what? He finds Jesus on every page. And he comes back to Damascus. Now let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, verse 22. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He was proclaiming. Now he goes to the desert, studies the Scriptures for three years, goes to seminary, comes back. Now he's proving that Jesus is Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. How do people respond? Look at verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with Him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put Him to death. But His disciples took Him by night and let Him down through an opening in the wall, lowering Him in a large basket. And then he goes on to Jerusalem. Notice verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. This had been a Christian killer. He couldn't make friends in Jerusalem. Verse 27, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus... Damascus, he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Whenever you see Barnabas in Scripture, his name means son of encouragement. He's always encouraging somebody or helping somebody out. And here he does. He runs interference for Paul before the apostles. And then verse 28, And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And notice verse 29, And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Starts out proclaiming, then he goes to seminary, comes back, now he's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now what's he doing? He's arguing with people that Jesus is the Christ. And then look at verse 30. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Tarsus was his hometown. They came to him and said, Paul, we're going to buy you a one-way ticket home. And they send him home. Now what's the result? Look at verse 30. But when the brethren... I'm sorry, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. That's interesting. Paul, you go home. Get out of here. What happens? The church gets blessing. Has peace and grows. How would you like that? You get out of the way and the church will really progress. You know what's interesting? If you read on in the book of Acts, you don't, we don't find Paul again until chapter 11 and verse 25. And there it says in verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. He being Barnabas. The same encourager 
goes to Tarsus to find Paul. Guess what? As much as ten years have gone by, and there's no Paul. We don't see him in the book of Acts. Nothing is going on. You say, well, where is Paul at? Look at Acts chapter 22 with me. Now stay with me, this is good. Acts chapter 22. Paul is giving his testimony. He says in verse 17, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. Now he's come back to Jerusalem, we read about it. He goes into the temple, he falls into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. You thought you were falling into a trance. So he's praying in the temple. He falls into a trance. God says, get out of Dodge. Leave Jerusalem. Now when God tells you that, it's probably a good idea to do it. But if you would like to debate with God, you can. Paul decides he's going to debate with God. So verse 19, And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Now what's Paul saying? He's saying, God, I can be successful here because I've got credentials. These people know that I used to be a Christian hater. They know that I stood by when Stephen was being stoned to death. They know that I've got street cred in Jerusalem. These people know me. I'm trying. If anybody can communicate with the Jewish community, it's me. I'm qualified. I'm adequate. And what does God say? Look at verse 21. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Interesting. I'm the most qualified guy for the job. Okay, then I'll send you far away where you're unqualified to minister to the Gentiles. I see this as a turning point in Paul's life. And I think he spells that out. Come to one other passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I know it's in the book we're studying, but it's far enough out that we won't get there for a while. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 30. He says, If I have to boast... I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Now there's a paradox. If I'm going to brag about something, it's going to be my weakness, my inadequacy that I brag about. What does he brag about? Verse 31. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus the king was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. 
and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped His hand. Paul says, the greatest event in my life, the one that I'll brag about, the greatest event that's happened to me besides my conversion is when I became a basket case. When I had to get inside a little basket and humbly be lowered down over the wall of Damascus. Because that's when I learned that my adequacy comes from God. That's when I learned that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever become a basket case? Have you ever been going along in your life doing things your way, in your power, according to your will, and you end up in a basket crying, Lord, take over, because I can't do this. If you haven't gotten there, guess what? You will. You can count on it. Because you see, that's the lesson we all must learn. We all must learn that our adequacy comes from God. He is our only means of adequacy. And that's why our inadequacy is adequate. Second reason is our message in verses 6 to 11. Notice back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, now that your fingers are all nimble, back in chapter 3 and verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. We have been made adequate for a reason. We have been made adequate as servants of a new covenant. That is our message. Now what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is, is the condition set up to establish a relationship. Nations have covenants with each other where they establish how things are going to operate. Business partners have covenants. Marriage is based on a covenant. Covenants are fundamental to human relationships. And so it's not surprising that God in His relationship with His people also has a covenant. He's going to talk here about the present covenant, the new covenant. But in order to show us the new covenant, He contrasts it with the previous covenant, the old covenant, which is the law. Now what was the condition of the law? You have to obey. What is the condition of the new covenant? Well, Jesus said in Luke 22.20, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is the condition of the new covenant? It's the death of Jesus Christ. It's the forgiveness that comes through His cross for the fact that we could not keep the law, the Old Covenant. And so the Old said, everything comes from you, nothing comes from God. The New Covenant says, everything comes from God, nothing comes from you. So when you think about the New Covenant, you think about our message, it's really a message that our inadequacy 
is adequate. And Paul contrasts the two covenant here in four ways, and I've listed them in your bulletin. First of all, the new covenant presents life rather than death. Again in verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now that phrase, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, is probably one of the most misunderstood phrases in all the Bible. Because I've heard people take this out of context and, and say things like, well, the letter is the Word of God and the Spirit is my experience. So my experience is more important than the Word of God. Or I've heard people say the letter means to take the Word of God literally and the Spirit means to take it figuratively when you interpret the Word of God. Well, that's not what he's saying at all. Because in the context, the letter is what? The letter is the Old Covenant and the Spirit is the New Covenant. He says the letter kills. When you read the Old Testament, what does it say? Do this or die. Paul sums it up in Galatians 3.10. He says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If you don't do it all, you're cursed and you die. What's the message of the new covenant? It's a message of life. Jesus said in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. The old covenant says, If you obey me, then you can live. The new covenant says, you live. So now, obey me. Second, the new covenant is, is abounding in glory or has abounding glory rather than fading glory. Notice verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? If the Old Covenant, the law, came with glory and it was a ministry of death, how much more glory will this New Covenant of life have? Now, the Old Covenant wasn't bad. In 1 Timothy 1.8, we're told the law is good. You're bad. The law is good. And it came with glory. In Exodus 34.29-35, you can read that when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. In fact, it was glowing so much that Aaron and the other people were afraid of Moses when he came down from the mountain. He didn't even know his face was glowing. He's just walking around doing his thing. And everybody's saying, whoa. His face is glowing. Why? Because of the glory of the law. But the new covenant has more glory. How much more? Look at verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. The glory of the New Covenant is so great that guess what? The Old Covenant looks like it has no glory at all. We had a wolf moon Friday night. Did you see it? No. Because we had a snowstorm. But have you ever been out on a night when you're, when you're out maybe away from the lights of the city and there's a full moon and, 
And you're out and it just gets brighter and brighter and you're thinking, man, that moon is bright. I can just see everything. And you're walking around and if you stay out until the sun comes up, guess what? The sun, the glory of the sun overcomes the glory of the moon and you can't even see the moon anymore. The old covenant was a glorious covenant. But when the new covenant came along, it looked like the old covenant didn't even have any glory anymore. Third, the new covenant is a covenant of righteousness rather than condemnation. Look at verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation, that's the old covenant, has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Now to understand this idea of condemnation and righteousness, go with me one more time back to Romans chapter 3 because Paul really spells it out here in Romans chapter 3. If you want to understand this, it's very clear in Romans 3 beginning in verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Nobody gets saved by doing good things. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Why did God give the law? God gave the law saying, do this and you'll live so that you, realize, you would realize you can't do this. And you can't in yourself have the adequacy to save yourself. That's why He gave the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I always say the law is like a mirror. Some of you need to go in the bathroom and look in the mirror because you've got some problems. Okay, You look in the mirror, you go... I don't, but your hair's out of place. That's one thing I never have to do, you know? And I don't carry a comb. But you look in the mirror and you say, something's out of place. The mirror gives you the knowledge that you've got a problem. But you don't go to the mirror for the solution, do you? If you look in the mirror and, and uh, you hugged somebody this morning during the greeting time, some lady and her makeup got all over the side of your face, and you look in there later today and you go, oh my goodness, i got makeup smeared all over me. You don't go to the mirror to get the makeup cleaned off. Where do you go? You go to the sink to get clean. The law is the mirror. It shows you you've got a problem. Where do you get the solution? Where do you get clean? Look at the next two verses in Romans 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. The law is that mirror. It says you're a sinner. And it drives you to Christ in faith because He's the only one who can take away your sin. Again, by the cross of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, the new covenant is eternal rather than temporary. Look at verse 11. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing, and, and the Bible says that he wore a veil to actually keep the people from seeing the glory that was fading away. 
And that's really a likeness of the Old Testament covenant. It had glory, but that glory was a glory that was fading away. In fact, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17 tells us all that remains of the law is just a shadow. It's, it's just a shadow that points you to Christ. But the new covenant remains. It's eternal. It's permanent. And so our inadequacy is adequate because of our message. It's the new covenant. It's a glorious message that will never fade away. It's a message that brings you what the old covenant never could. Life and righteousness. And it's a covenant that is fulfilled only in one way through the cross of Jesus Christ which tells us that our adequacy all comes from Him and none of it comes from ourselves. That's why our inadequacy is adequate. Our means, our message, thirdly, our metamorphosis in verses 12 to 18. Notice verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We have hope. What is our hope? It's this eternal covenant that God has made with us. Verse 13. And we're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Why did Moses put the veil over his face? You say because he looked like sunshine. And he didn't want to intimidate people. No, it says here he put it over his face so they wouldn't see that that glory was fading away. He didn't want to... He wanted, he didn't want them to think they were following a leader who, was, who had fading glory. And so he wore a veil to keep them from seeing that. And Paul takes that analogy and really uses it to say that the old covenant was concealed by a veil. The new covenant is one that is open and we use boldness to declare it. Notice verse 14. But their minds were hardened for until this day, very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Even though Moses' face shone as he read the law, they still didn't get it because they were hardened. And Paul says that veil remains today. There is a spiritual veil today over the people of Israel. Where is it? Verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Whose heart? Israel's heart. They can't see the truths of God. You ever wonder why it's very difficult to share the Gospel with a Jewish person? This passage tells us there's a veil over their hearts. How does one remove the veil? The end of verse 14 says it's removed in Christ. Verse 16 says, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now Paul was speaking from experience because he said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. On the Damascus road, guess what? He got the veil taken away and saw the Lord Jesus. And then I want you to see verses 17 and 18 this morning in closing. Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Old Covenant brought bondage. The Spirit through the New Testament brings liberty. Liberty from the blindness of the veil. Liberty from the law as a covenant. We are liberated from that outer law to an inner law, which verse 3 of chapter 3 says, 
is not written on stones, but is written on human hearts. And then verse 18, I love this verse. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. All of us with unveiled face. Who's that? Verse 16. Everyone who turns to the Lord has the veil removed. Under the Old Covenant, the only one who got to see the glory of God was Moses. But under the New Covenant, guess what? Every one of you who turns to Christ gets to see the glory of the Lord. And where is it? He says we look at it in a mirror. What's the mirror? The mirror is the Word of God. In the Word of God, a sinner sees his sin. But a believer sees in the Word of God the glory of Christ. And as we see the glory of Christ in the Word of God, guess what? We become like Him. Verse 18 says we are transformed. That is a Greek word that means we are metamorphosized. It's the same word used on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when Jesus was transfigured before them? He was metamorphosized before them. They saw Him in all His glory and He shone in their presence. That's what's happening to you as a believer. You are being metamorphosized. You are moving from caterpillar stage to butterfly stage. He says here, from glory to glory. From one stage of glory to another stage of glory. Which tells us it's a process. Your salvation happens instantaneously. Your sanctification is a process. And what I want you to notice in verse 18, it's God's process. What do you do? You behold the glory of the Lord. And what does God do? He changes you. You don't try harder to become a better Christian. You come to the Word of God and you, you gaze on the glory of Jesus Christ. And God metamorphosizes you into His likeness from one glory to the next glory to the next glory. And when is that process complete? It's going to be completed when Jesus Christ comes back. 1 John 3.2 says, If He should appear, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. That's our hope. And everyone who has that, our hope fixed on Him purifies Himself as He is pure. That is our hope. That rather than the fading glory that Moses experienced, we are being transformed into Christ's image from glory to glory until ultimately He comes back and we will be just like Him. And guess what? That hope implies our inadequacy because we need to be changed. We need to be metamorphosized. And that's why our inadequacy is adequate. So Paul gives us three reasons why our inadequacy is adequate. Our means, our adequacy comes from God, not us. Our message, 
A covenant based on the cross of Christ, not us. Our metamorphosis to be changed into Christ's image by the Spirit of God, not us. Did you get that? That's why it says in verse 18, it's all about His glory. Because He does it all. And there's no better place to realize that truth than the cross of Jesus. And we're going to take communion this morning. We're going to take the bread and the cup that reminds us of the cross. Reminds us of His death. I don't think you can sit under the cross of Jesus with an attitude that says, I'm adequate. Because the very cross of Jesus Christ, the cost He had to pay to redeem you, tells you that you're inadequate. It shows us the cost He had to pay to take you from inadequate to adequate, to take you from condemned to righteous, to take you from veiled to unveiled, to take you from me-like to Christ-like, to take you from darkness to glory. And this morning, we're going to do what Jesus asked us to do. We're going to take the bread and the cup and we're going to remember His death until He comes. We're going to remember the cross of Christ and we're going to celebrate that our inadequacy is adequate in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You today for the cross. We thank You that You were willing, Lord Jesus, to pay the debt we could never pay. That You were willing to pay for all of those sins that the law showed us our inadequacy in. All those laws that we cannot keep and we continue to break. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You loved us enough to go to the cross in our place. And as we come today and take the bread and the cup, we remember Your sacrifice. And we give You thanks from our heart of hearts for all that You've given us. We thank You that our inadequacy is adequate because You are God and You paid the price. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would rise in worship today as we do this together for Your glory. In Jesus' name.